guys are are our non-talkative ones uh, gone today? It's the it's the quiet ones. That's gonna be rough because I kind of expected on you guys talking to me during some of this. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, yeah, was kind of I I tried to write this. <laughs> yeah, I tried to write this as something that uh, you know we can think together. Matter of fact, that's that's honestly how I think about this role in this era, right? There might have been an era when, um, you know, pastors were the, they, they might have been the only ones who had access even to the Bible. You know, that, that, that might have been their role. They might have been the only literate one in, in, a, in a church or in a community, right? But we live in a completely different age. And so um, one of the things that's important to me is that, is that uh, you know, we're learning together, right? And we still, I, and I will fully admit, we still depend on the old models because we don't, you know, other than to do what it is that we've done, right? And so in some ways, we're always experimenting a little bit at a time, Sonia and I are, and trying to figure out ways that, because, you know, it's got to engage all of us if we're going to grow as a community, yeah? And so um, I'm trying some of that a little bit more today, but... um, I also am aware of the time, so if you need to go, don't feel bad. I won't take it uh, too personally. Like, I get a little, like, uh, you know, but it's, it's not, like, really bad, you know. It's just, I, I have to tell myself, you know, they had somewhere to be, you know, it's okay. And it shouldn't be about you anyway, Paul, right? Like, that whole, it's a whole journey, right? But it happens pretty quick, you know. <laughs> I don't do that. <laughs> I couldn't do that. Uh, I have too... I'm too weak for that. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> so um, looking outside, you know, the last couple of days, I mean, the, the snow was beautiful at about like 6.30 this morning. It was gorgeous, you know. Um, but other than that, it's been just kind of gray, typical winter stuff, right? And um, so I was thinking about this. Um, when it's like this, do you dream of like warm summer days? And if you do, what is it that you guys like to do on those days? What do you think about? <laughs> Plug the air conditioning in. Vic plugs the air conditioning in and puts a humidifier on in his room. So <laughs> I want it to be rainy and cold. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, uh, well, I was thinking of like eating outside at a, your favorite pub or your favorite cafe. What's the best patio in town to to go hang out on? Oh, that is a really good. That one's good. Like three seasons, even even four seasons. Yeah, yeah. And the fire going if it's if it's dry. I love that one. I kind of like the Fulton. If you ever, if you haven't ever hung out at the Fulton, it's completely understandable. It's right. Uh, I'm disoriented here. It's over there, right? Yeah, yeah. It's right back there, uh, off of Nebraska, and um, it looks like nothing from the outside. It just looks like a dive bar. But when you get back in the patio, it's like this cool little oasis. And same kind of thing. It's another McMinimins, you know. So I dig it. I'm dreaming of riding my motorcycle in the sunshine because I bought my bike as as the weather got bad uh, this last fall. So I've been basically riding in the rain and then on cold uh, days <laughs> when it's sunny. I'm like, yeah, it's great, you know. <laughs> but 
So the, the excitement of starting to ride motorcycles again has kind of carried me through. But I am looking forward to like getting on the bike. Because, I mean, that, the thing was, I've been, I've been dreaming of, of riding on the coast, like, basically my whole adult life. And so finally I bought a bike, and I'm, I'm going to do that this summer. So I'm excited. Um, you know, who walks and bikes on the riverfront? Yeah. You guys are excited about it. I can tell. Anybody ever get a ride in Fred's boat? Yeah. Got to ride with him a few times. Boy, getting out on Columbia, view of Mount Hood from the Columbia is epic if you ever get to do that. I highly recommend it. Anyway, this is just my segue to talk about my friend Mike, um, who I worked for when I was in college. And um, he owned the apartment building Sonia and I lived in and managed uh, during our last couple of years of school. And um, he would do this trip, or, or like not a trip, just an evening, an afternoon and evening. Every um, summer, he'd invite uh, like former caretakers like us and we'd all, whoever was available, would go and hang out on his boat on Lake Minnetonka in the Minneapolis area, which is um, incredible. If you're not familiar with it, it's not going to mean anything to you. But it is like, um, I, I don't know, it's like going anywhere, wherever millionaires live and have like $40 million homes on beachfront stuff, that's what it's like. It's insane. And so Mike had lived on that lake for, oh, I don't know, 30 years or something. And so he would give us a tour and tell us, oh, that, that house was bought and built by the guy who uh, invented the Breathe Right Strip. You know those things? He invented that, and, and he owns this, like, $35 million <laughs> mansion on this side of, like, the, from the Breathe Right Strip. So you guys, keep up with your ideas. Like, write them down, you know. Although, where we're going with this talk, it, it, there might be some caveats. Um, so, <laughs> but, so Mike was, Mike was well off. But he wasn't, you know, like wealthy. I went out with him one time and he brought his friend that we eventually uh, started calling Mr. Duluth. Uh, that was his, um, that's kind of, we just made up that name. Because the more we found out about him, he owned 40% of the commercial property in Duluth, Minnesota. Yeah. So like, you know, basically of the commercial stuff, he owned almost half of, of that property. And um, he was wealthy and he knew it. And he, I guess, wanted others to know it. You know, it was a, it's kind of a thing, and it just kind of exuded from him. And and then it, some of it was obnoxious. It was hilarious to watch, but it, it was. I remember we were at this uh, little restaurant bar, and he wasn't getting service fast enough. You know, so he's yelling, nobody's coming. Then he grabs this one of those places that had the plastic basket with the silverware in the middle. You know. And he starts banging the ba the basket on the table. <laughs> you know, this guy's a toddler. Like he's just like banging it. The, 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 the silverware is flying, and eventually he's just taking silverware and just throwing it across the room, just to try to get attention. <laughs> anyway, he was probably the yeah, yeah. He was probably the wealthiest person that I ever spent um, social or significant social time with. And, <laughs> I didn't see that, but it, it was an entertaining evening, to say the least, uh, hanging out with him and Mike, and and, um, and I was thinking about that, I was thinking about who's the wealthiest person that I've spent time with and hung out with, because this week's passage, it really uh, addresses that, right, it addresses the wealthy, this, he, well, this is kind of a spoiler, if you plan, uh, like, to be featured in the upcoming film Crazy Rich Christians, 
you're not going to like this passage. Okay, at the end, though. Wow, that was terrible. Swing and a miss. Yes, stone him. <laughs> it was funny at like 5.30 this morning, you know. Um, <laughs> I, I still haven't seen Crazy Rich Asians, but Sonny did and said it was really funny. So. <laughs> All right, let's get into this. We're talking about rich people. <laughs> and um, it's James 1 or James 5, verses 1 through 7, right? And this is his opening line of this chapter Come now, you rich, weep. And cry aloud over the miseries that are coming on you. That's, that's his opener. <laughs> he clearly wanted rich people on his board at his church. Um, <laughs> so who's the rich? You guys have been going through this, right? Who's the rich in, in this context of James? What Anybody? It, you don't have to be right. Just talk to me. <laughs> well, well, we've talked about, yeah, okay, so uh, this is good. Uh, you know, maybe I've not been doing a good job teaching. Um, <laughs> the, the context is that the landowners um, that are kind of the leadership among the Jewish people are going to be the wealthy. They're going to be the ones that have been um, oppressing uh, the people who are in poverty. And yeah, they're in often in good relationships with the uh, oppressing government, the, the Romans, right? Because the, the Romans have, have uh, taken over um, the area and they're in charge, but they need like client kings and then uh, client royalty, basically, uh, which was, you know, it's, 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 it's interesting because it's all tied up in their faith too, Right. It's kind of like, I think it's like a lot of medieval European stuff where you had royalty that were also influenced by or, you know, really in control of the church, that kind of thing. So it's similar to that kind of structure. Is that a good analogy, you think, Joe? (laughs) Joe's not going to help me. (laughs) Oh, like who he's addressing. I don't think it's limited to that. You know, um, I think he is like, I mean, they would be believing in the sense of they're Jewish, right? But they might not be in the church, but some of them obviously have been in the church because he addresses that earlier, right? Yeah. And he, I mean, he kind of hammers the church for showing favoritism to the, the wealthy, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a, a passage mentioning how Jesus, his ministry was supported by some uh, wealthy women that were disciples of his, and they would uh, travel around with him and uh, and foot the bill for the the ministry stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, he's addressing the rich right now, right? And so it's unclear if it's like. Is he addressing just the rich that's among them? Or the, or well, I would say even just, because I think James still had a we are Israel point of view. You know, I don't, I don't think he, um, there, there's a lot uh, suggests, stuff that suggests 
that they early Christians still thought of themselves as Jewish, the especially ones in Jerusalem, that they were um, thought of as just another, yeah, yeah. So I think if he's writing this, he's thinking of like, who are the wealthy in Jerusalem? And, um, you know. Yeah, but I think they all were mixed together, right? They were going to synagogue together. They were going to temple. Um, they were doing all of that until um, Rome came in and the war happened in seventy in the early 70s and everything got destroyed. And that's when you see this separation because the Christians got scapegoated by the... Um, by the Jewish community, right? They said it was because of you that they destroyed the temple, and so now you're kicked out of synagogue, and the, and that was when you see the separation of Christians and uh, and uh, the kind of uh, synagogue system. Yeah, that's kind of where you see that. Um, I did pull a little line from Craig Keener. It says throughout most of the rural areas of the Roman Empire, including much of rural Galilee, rich landowners profited from the toil of the serfs. So this is what makes me think of, it's kind of like medieval Europe. You know, it's the same kind of thing. There's rich landowners, they're, they're profiting off of the work of, um, you know, slave workers and uh, indentured servant type folks. Uh, uh, almost like a sharecropper too, with some of this imagery. They're working on the land, but they don't own the land. Um, but they, these folks worked their massive estates. Uh, that feudalism arose only in medieval times is a misconception. It is simply less prominent in literature of Rome, uh, Roman times because Roman literature concentrated on the cities, although only about 10% of the empire is estimated to have been urban. So, so why are they uh, being addressed so harshly? Right? This, I mean, he just blasts them, right? And he's been going at them. So this method may not work. I, <laughs> maybe I, yeah, that, I'm asking questions. <laughs> yeah, because I figured today it would be like this. We'd have uh, people who were scared of the snow, and then we would be kind of like a small group. So maybe what I should have done was like had us all sit in a circle and uh, not had a microphone. <laughs> I know that, that probably makes it uncomfortable. Yeah, why, why is he, why, uh, if you can remember from the stuff we've been talking about, you know, why is, why is he upset with the rich? Is it just because they're rich? I mean, is it, you know, they, you have money, I'm upset with you. Is that his thing? Or what's his thing, if anyone can recall? Yeah. I think it's both and. I think that you guys hit both of the really big biblical themes like that run throughout all of Scripture uh, that kind of go at um, the wealthy is that they will tend to depend upon their wealth um, rather than depend upon God and that they, uh, and then kind of the, um, the way brokenness plays out in their life is they exploit and, um, and don't care for the vulnerable.
Yes. Oh, that's good, Joe. That is a really good, that's a good nugget to kind of just tuck away because I think that, and that obviously earlier in the passage that we just, or in the letter that we referred to, you know, he's he's chastising them for showing that favoritism, right? And going, hey, you guys, this is who we want to be like, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Verse 2 says, Your riches have rotted and your clothing has become moth eaten. Um, <laughs> I liked uh, the message says, uh, like, your clothes stink. That's <laughs> how, how he translates it. I love that. I thought, you don't smell like Santa. You smell like beef and cheese. Um, but. The, the word the word for rotten there okay is a Greek word sapo right and um, if I, if I give you the words sapo and the word rotten what does that make anybody think of anything or is this just Greek nerd stuff because I immediately thought of something I heard the phonetics of uh, sapo and and then I, I knew it meant rotten and then I was like oh I wonder if this okay probably not um, because it's a, it's where we get a, a word that we use a medical term. Yes, yeah. septic. It, it, so from this group of words, sapo, you get the word septic or uh, sepsis, right? Um, which is a nasty, nasty thing, right? It kills you, and um, that's the kind of rottenness I think that, or at least it gives us a picture as that has come down to us. It, it doesn't. Um, literally mean that, right? They didn't use that word in that that way particularly. They might have used it if you had that, and they wouldn't have known it was sepsis, but they would have been that's rotten, you know? Like if you, but it um, I, it just gave me a powerful image of like, you know, your riches is this, this rotten kind of infecting thing. Um, from that passage, your riches have rotted, your clothing has, has become moth-eaten. What other Bible passages come to mind? Is something... Pop in your head. Something by Jesus, perhaps. I, 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 I have it here. <laughs> so, um, I just thought this exercise of like drawing from your memory might be helpful to think of think of things Jesus has said. Uh huh. Yeah. Well, that's an incredible passage having to do with the wealthy. And salvation, yeah, and there he's, he's like, it's impossible. Um, with man, it's impossible for the rich to be saved, but with God, all things are possible. You know, that's what he says. But th- th- when, I, when I heard this, uh, uh, your, your riches are rotten and your, and your clothes are moth-eaten, I immediately thought of Jesus' teaching in Matthew 6, and I, you know, I had to go back and look it up. Um, so I don't mean to be like, I have all the Bible memorized. I hope I'm not, that's not, this is all written down. <laughs> <laughs> and I uh, and I have a computer, you know, and I look up words and go, "What is that word?" <laughs> you know. So, uh, 
So I, I go back and I look at uh, Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. And the reason we, I do this is because I think it's important to get an image of like more than one statement about an idea in Scripture. And then for me, I, I believe that Jesus is the ultimate interpretive key. And so for me, I go, what, Jesus is the authority. What, what has been said, did Jesus say something about this idea? I want to find that, and that's, that's going to be the deciding factor for me on how I, I think about like the idea, the theology of that thing, right? So I, I find this in Jesus, and Jesus uh, is, there's all, this is right after the Sermon on the Mount, um, and he's, he's still, this a collection of um, statements and, and uh, wisdom and, and these teachings, and he says, do not accumulate for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But accumulate for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And, and, and I probably should have read verse 3 because then it, it gives even more of that image. Um, back to James, uh, verse 3. Your gold and silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you. It will consume your flesh like fire. It is, the, is, it is in the last days that you have hoarded treasure. Now, in this instance, I liked um, Eugene Peterson's translation of this verse because um, the, Net, the Net Bible, which I'm reading, um, just gives you a literal kind of rendering of this. But these are images that meant something to them, right? And he, he gets a little more interpretive. He says, your greedy luxuries are a cancer in your gut, destroying your life from within. You thought you were piling up wealth. What you've piled up is judgment. Right? Anytime we see fire, it's this image of judgment. And um, see, this is, this, is the, this is the thing about this stuff. It's always flipping like what are, are the values that we grow up around have been the, the, those values that have been handed to us. I, I, after preaching through books of the Bible for nine years now, um, I, I just am stunned by how often this theme just keeps coming up. Like who we think um, the wealthy and the powerful are uh, and, and or who they are in this system is not who we want to be if we're following Jesus. It's just over and over again, the, um, the theme. Uh, verse 4, look, uh, the pay you have held back from the workers who mowed your fields uh, cries out against you, and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You know, so um, James has all this Old Testament stuff in his head when he's, when he's doing this. He's thinking uh, about specific Old Testament passages, the... Um, uh, what is this? The new uh, Bible commentary uh, said that the uh, law of Moses forbade withholding wages even overnight, uh, that, that the wrong done, the oppressed, would itself cry out against God or cry out to God against the oppressor was also an Old Testament image. In first century Palestine, many day laborers depended on their daily wages to purchase food for themselves and their families, withholding money could mean that they would go hungry. Uh, verse 5, you have lived indulgently and luxuriously on the earth. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. 
this is, again is imagery that I think Eugene Peterson's translation of the message uh, gives a little more interpretive stuff to. He says, you've looted the earth and lived it up, but all you have to show for it is a fatter than usual corpse. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You've can. <laughs> uh huh. Or calloused heart. Uh huh. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and and um, and they would re- refer to use that word fat too, ref- referencing the wealthy and the powerful because they were the ones fat enough to eat when others didn't, and others wouldn't be as fat. <laughs> and that's what that's what uh, Eugene is trying to give in, give you there within a couple of words is that that imagery. Um, and then the final verse: You've condemned and murdered the righteous person, although he does not resist you. Um, commentary again says judicial oppression of the poor repeatedly condemned in the old testament was viewed as murder in later jewish texts to take a person's garment or to withhold a person's wages was to risk that person's life Um, james known as the just uh, himself was later martyred by the high priest for his denunciations of the behavior of the rich so this was uh this is subversive stuff that he's writing within the culture that he's in. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, if, if you're not familiar with uh, what um, Taylor is referring to, we've been working through a, um, uh, a classic liberation theology called uh, uh, Theology of Black Liberation by James Cone that was written in 1970. That's been our, our pub theology project, and we just finished that up this last week. Um, but what I love about the works like that that she's referring to is it it is just, it's concrete. There's no um, abstractness to the theology. Uh, there's not a lot of time wasted on um, just kind of musing uh, about God, but it is, what does God have to say to the hurting, the poor, the oppressed person? And, and, and that, that consistently, um, the, the question that ends up getting answered and brought up. And um, I don't know, we, we've talked about this a lot, that we uh, we speculate or we wonder like has the the gospel in America lost some of its uh, you know power because it's been neutered by removing it from the dirt and the grime of 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 what goes on in America what has gone on in America take take the the racial issue alone um, you couldn't read the gospel literally. And then be intellectually honest in a white supremacist America. You just couldn't do it. Um, we've talked about the fact that uh, chopped up Bibles, basically edited Bibles, were given to slaves. Andrew uh, brought that up a few weeks ago when he was sharing with us. 
Um, yeah, you know, because like, you're not going to give them Bibles that have Exodus in it, you know. And, and so that is the way Christianity has been practiced in America. This, I mean, think of this passage. How do we read this? It, and we, we, we'd, ha- we'd have to spiritualize it if we were going to not acknowledge that James does not paint a pretty picture for chasing a life of wealth. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. I mean, this is, yeah, I mean, that's kind of where I'm going next, right? Is, is you know, <laughs> you know, a silly question. Do we see these same problems today? You know, um, do the wealthy take advantage of the poor in our society? You know, of course, yeah. I mean, I don't know if everybody knows what you're referencing. You, you know, you, go ahead and, because I'd love to have that as an example of this kind of brokenness living out right here in our area. That's my point <laughs> of, of passages like this. And um, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. and, 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 and I'll just cut to the, the chase of what I really wanted to say just because of time and, and what we have. Um, I'm so bothered by this because um, the, the the church that I have grown up in, Big C, like the, the greater church, um, so spiritualized the gospel that at times you couldn't even see these connections. That this this is the gospel. Like what Jesus came to do wasn't only a spiritual thing. I mean, James was killed because he called out the rich. So if we read the gospel and make it only about our own personal sins, and and we go, well, I'm not doing this, you could walk away from this passage and just be like, yeah, okay, well, I'm not not paying anybody. You know, I'm not. But this, I just can't help but go, this calls us to, to concern, to to learn, to action, to I mean I I don't have the answers to this. I I feel almost as much a novice about this as as anybody. Um, but I continually come to uh, 
feeling like, well, here's an example. I was with uh, Micah Challenge, um, which worked on the eight millennial de- Millennium Development Goals, which were the goals uh, that the UN uh, developed to eradicate extreme poverty. And Micah Challenge worked to get the church, the, especially the conservative evangelical church, to engage with those goals. I interned with that group during my seminary time. And one of the things that I learned was that when um, Jason, uh, who is the president who I entered under, would ask a, a room full of evangelical pastors for a passage about the poor from Scripture, by and large, they all came up with the same one. And it was when Jesus says, you'll have the poor with you always. And the the um, the and I won't bother reading it. If you want more of this in detail, I, I I can give this to you if you want to take a look at it yourself. You'll just have to trust me right now. Um, <laughs> but, you know, that passage gets quoted often as if when Jesus says, because the, the story is where the, the, um, the woman comes and she breaks the alabaster jar, right? And it's like a year's worth of uh, this perfumed oil. And uh, some of the disciples get upset. And the statement is, oh, we could have sold that and given it to the poor. And Jesus is like, hey, you'll have the poor with you always. And, um, and, and that gets taken and even preached at times as if we're not going to eradicate poverty. You know, that's not what the church is here to do. The church is here to save souls. That's, that's the way um, the thinking goes. And, and I, I can say that confidently because I've seen it in the uh, sessions I've been with, with um, Jason. That, that is the thinking. The problem is uh, it's, it's a complete opposite of what Jesus is doing there. Um, if you study the passage, you start to see, oh, Jesus is quoting a passage from Deuteronomy. He's not just making a flippant statement saying, hey, you'll have the poor with you always. Uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 15, the verses are 7 through 11, if you uh, want to take a look at it, is where he draws this from. It is a mandate to Israel to care for the poor. And the statement, you will have the poor with you always, is you'll always have this opportunity to care for the poor. They will always be there and it will always be part of what you do. And that's what he's saying to them is like, hey, you guys are getting upset about this. You're going to all you're going to have plenty of opportunity to care for the poor. You know, I'm here now. This is a special event. This is something that's going on. And this, 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 like preparing him, this symbol of preparing him for burial, right? You want me to read it? Okay, yeah. Uh, there will never cease to be some poor people in the land. Therefore, I am commanding you to make sure you open your hand to your fellow Israelites who are needy and poor in your land. Yeah, that's the whole verse. That's the context. Um, of what Jesus is doing, teaching that verse. I wrote a blog on this that was part of my job uh, as an intern, and I got all this pushback online from conservative Christians that were like, no, you know, because it went against how they'd heard it in the pulpit their whole life. And so that was, you know, challenging for them. And um, in, in, in thinking about this stuff will wreck you. Absolutely. Because we can't fix this, right? And, and uh, you know, especially like our dominant culture, right? White culture. We want to just fix, like we love problems we can fix, but if we can't fix a problem, we, uh, we'll move on to something else, right? 
Like sitting in tension is really difficult for us, right? Sitting and going, oh man, the poor are still here. We, we did this program, why didn't that fix it? Let's start another program, well, why didn't that fix it? You know, I, I think the issue is, this is, it is, we are meant to love. You know, if you want to get mystical about it, it, it might tie into some of what Kathy was talking about, is that God is constantly challenging the wealthy, saying you're depending on your wealth Instead of depending on me, why don't you give your wealth away, depend on me, relieve the suffering of someone else, and all of a sudden you've got this thing that works and starts to look like the kingdom of God. That, I think, is what's really supposed to be going on. And it is this, all of a sudden it becomes this beautiful image, but it gets all stopped up in the, the fat human heart, right? The, the calloused human heart. It gets the, the, the wealth that God is trying to move through to people, uh, it, it, gets, it gets stopped up, you know? And, um, you know, and I'm not saying, like, I'm not even commenting on governmental systems, right? This is something you've got to wrestle with, figure out your own. Um, I will say this, though, about, say, like, because we're going to hear so much discussion, right, over the next couple of years, people calling people socialists and, and um, the veneration of capitalism, right? And um, here is my opinion. This is not Bible teaching or anything. This is just my opinion. But um, tyranny can come in either system, right? The system of socialism, you can have tyranny of government. Um, in capitalism, you can have tyranny of the wealthy, just like what's being called out here, right? And that, I think, as a people is what we are to work against, is, is tyranny. We are to work towards uh, people's freedom. Because that is what God is doing throughout this whole system, is liberating people, setting people free from their sins, which, you know, you can try to separate this. I wasn't going to preach, but I just, this is driving me nuts. Um, you, you, you can try to separate this stuff and go, what people need liberated from is their sin, as if it's something separate from the systems of the world that hurt people and make people suffer. But it's, it's the, the systems that are born out of sinful human hearts that end up being what is hurtful to people. And the church needs to be a voice of hope in the midst of that. Now, it's, it's hard, and we're not going to agree. We need to agree on the fact that God loves the poor, that God cares for the vulnerable, and we should have a heart for that. I think that's non-negotiable. That, that is my opinion on that. What's negotiable is how we're going to accomplish that. And some of you are going to land real hard on, say, a, a, like a democratic idea of things and more social nets and that kind of thing when you're talking about practical stuff. And some of you are going to say, no, we need uh, just a better economy because then that lifts everybody, right? And, and you can have those arguments. But we, we've got to agree on the fact that the church's voice has got to always be about the care for the poor. When Jesus shows up to announce his ministry, this is what he says, right? Luke chapter 4, verse 16, uh, going forward. Jesus came to Nazareth. This is after he's been out in the desert. He's full of the Holy Spirit. He's like totally kicked the devil's butt and just like the whole thing is just, he's full of power and he shows up and he says this. Now it says, Jesus came to Nazareth, which is his hometown, where he had been brought up. And he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was, was given to him. 
I never really noticed that before. He didn't like pick the scroll that day. <laughs> that's the one that was handed to him. That's providential, right? Like that's God at work on a deep level. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. There's a liturgy. Yeah, okay. Anyway, <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. Undo my. Ex- <laughs> no, it was a momentary excitement. It's fine. I, I, <laughs> I, I should have thought it through. <laughs> But he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and the regaining of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to tell them, today this scripture has been fulfilled even as you heard it being read. That's what he came to do. And it, it means that plainly. I've, I've, I've studied this, or, uh, I think Matthew uses the term poor in spirit. And I, you know, looked at this and I, I thought, you know, I, I was like, I've heard the different interpretations, right? Long and short of it, what I'm going with is like what the um, uh, the theological, uh, the new theological dictionary, their article on this says that um, uh, poor in the Bible basically refers to people's physical condition. Poor in spirit are those who because of their condition in this world are dependent on and have turned to God. The term does not refer to spiritual deadness, atheism, or humility. And I, I just have decided to leave it there. Uh, whether it says porn, I, I think I think in a lot of ways we've missed the boat on this uh, in the past. And I, I think we need to listen to these words more literally than we ever have at times and let it be what it is that God cares for the poor. And we are to be that uh, that love extended in the world around us. And and um, I, I have a ton more, but I'm not going to. I believe it because it's already twelve thirty, but um, I hope this is where we are going as a community of people is to be challenged by this, to let this uh, make us uncomfortable, um, to let it be a long lifetime of trying to learn this stuff, and to um, to not reinterpret the things that make us uncomfortable, <laughs> and and. and to recognize that we have some sort of role in engaging uh, with the society that we are in and, uh, and that we've got to work towards finding that. And um, so we're, we'll, we'll do our thing. You can go if you want to go, um, but we're going to leave time for a response like we always do. And, um, and then we'll, we'll read at the end if you want to hang around for that. Uh, but um, so if, if, if this was... Uh, messed up your schedule today. I'm sorry, but um, I'm glad you guys hung around. And uh, I, I hope this can be an ongoing conversation uh, about this stuff. Us trying to trying to learn um, this. Let's pray. Lord, I'm challenged by your word. God, I'm challenged by the teachers you've put forth in uh, the New Testament and the Old Testament prophets that you've used to call out uh, systems of power and systems of wealth. God. Um, 
Lord, I don't know what the right answer is always in our society, and I don't know if any of us do. I think some of the point is that we are supposed to uh, do our best to hear from you consistently and ask you to help us. And so um, I do that right now, God. Help us. Help us, Lord. Help us know what the right actions are to take. Help us to know, God, the uh, the individual steps that, that we need to make as just um, the, uh, individual people. Uh, help us to know the actions we should take as a, as a community, as a family of faith. Um, Lord, continue to challenge us and shape us and help us uh, live by your kingdom's values. God, and we ask that you would uh, provide for the poor among us. And uh, if there's ways that we can uh, be helpful in that, um, help us, God, to see that. Open our eyes uh, to the vulnerable, to the hurting, to the suffering of this world. Um, and let us see that with your eyes, God. I love you and I pray a blessing upon this community. Um, I pray that you would just be in our homes, be in our hearts, be in our conversations, be with us at our meals. 